0: Um, This morning we're going to look at the forgiveness of Jesus um, in Luke 7. And I think um, a big portion of us... Understanding the gospel rightly is understanding what we've been forgiven from. Um, This is a huge deal for us because uh, if we get what we've been forgiven from, we'll get to worship him and understand him and know him uh, better. And our affections for him will continue and continue to grow. And so Jesus, at this point in Luke 7, he is traveling. He's in his uh, three-year ministry stint, and he is traveling and speaking at multiple places. Uh, Jesus at this point had become very popular. Um, People were kind of uh, emptying out villages to come and hear him speak. And what you would see typically when Jesus would speak, he would draw a large crowd of people. And what I've consistently talked about is Jesus has not been real interested in the crowd. He's been interested in his uh, disciples and how he would teach his disciples. Um, But what you'll see here is when a crowd is gathered, people are gathered for multiple reasons. Uh, Just like here... um, today, but here's what this would look like for Jesus. Um, some would come to Jesus because they knew that he was an excellent teacher. that They knew that he would say um, very profound things that would, would just blow people's minds. And then other people would come because he, they knew that he was a healer, and so they wanted to be healed. Uh, others knew that he had the uh, authority and the ability to forgive sin, and we'll see this uh, later in the text. And, and what you also see is there, there's another group of people um, that would show up that would basically, their existence and being there was basically to find him wrong somehow, and to to call him a hypocrite, and to find him in in fault in theology somehow, and they would kind of catch his doctrine. And by the way, it's never good um, to challenge Jesus on the Bible, all right? He wrote it. Okay, you're going to lose that battle. Um, but the Pharisees, they didn't, they didn't know that, and that's that group of people who were trying to hear him, and they were trying to challenge him. They just didn't realize that he was God. And so they're challenging him on doctrine. So what they would, they would often do is they would often invite him somewhere where they would know that they could catch him in, in possibly a lie or some type of hypocrisy or uh, not fulfilling the law, which they wanted everyone to fulfill. And, uh, and it was some of the, their own man-made ideas that they wanted Jesus to follow. And so they're coming at Jesus aggressively approaching him. And they would often invite him, ...to their house. And this is where we end up seeing here in, in the text in Luke 7. You see Pharisees that are inviting him into their house. We don't know exactly why... ...but it's possibly that they could trap him in some type of hypocrisy. It's kind of like those guys who were doing those schemes. You know? You meet them at Krispy Kreme and they're like... ...Hey, I want to be your friend. Let's, why don't you come over to my house later? And then they're like, what, what are your dreams? Right? Oh, I can help you achieve your dreams, right? And, they, and you realize that they're just trying to sell you something. You're like, you don't want to be my friend. Like You just feel hijacked, right? And this is exactly kind of how the Pharisees, are, they're setting him up. I want to be your friend. I want, to, I, want to, I want to talk to you. I want to get to know you. And then, then we see what happens here in the text. Look here in verse chapter 7 of Luke, verse 36. It says this. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went with the Pharisee's house, uh, went to the Pharisee's house, and uh, took his place at the table. Uh, Other translations in verse 36, it says that he took his place reclining at the table. Um, Some even in my own Bible, the ESV translation, which I think is is an excellent translation, um, it, it might have in some ESVs that it would say that he was reclining at the table. And what we find out later in 37, he is reclining at the table, all right? So that's that's there. It's established um, Jesus is reclining at this table. Now, here's what, it, it sounds really interesting. It, 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 when I read this at first glance, it almost seems like everybody's got lazy boys, and they're just sitting around the table. Um, but here's, here's what it was here in the ancient times when people would eat together. It meant more than than what we do on Sunday afternoons after church. Like, it, it meant so much more than... You know, being at the ale house and having multiple screens around and listening to the loud music and you're not even engaged in the conversation in front of you because you're watching. Like I have to intentionally not face the monitors because I will lose any any thought that anyone said, I'm a major ADD. So, I mean, if you look at L House, that's like the worst nightmare for me, all right? It's like the worst thing in the world. I'm like, yeah, baby, that's good, yeah. Uh-huh, yeah, so, so you're, you're, okay, so you're water broke. Yeah, man, it's awesome. Yeah. And I'm just looking at the game, and, and I'm not in tune. And so uh, we have so many distractions that I don't think we can really grasp um, sort of the intimacy here, uh, what, what would happen in meals. And what would happen was when people would, uh, the, the table would be low, and people would lay down um, and kind of recline on their side and they would sleep on their side and their legs would often be faced the other other way so they would just kind of eat that way and they would lay really close together enough to make us feel really uncomfortable. And this is what they would do when they ate, and it was very intimate. They were face to face, and this is um, kind of the setting of what we're looking at here. And what would happen is, if someone was going to throw this type of gathering, this type of a party where multiple people are invited, uh, it really was a big deal for the whole community. Um, if you were uh, someone an upperclassman or a, a upper citi- or a higher citizen, you would perform this type of party, and what would happen is you would sit around and they would invite other people that they trusted and they knew uh, that could come in. They couldn't eat, but they would stand behind everyone who's kind of reclining and laying down at the table, and they would listen and hear uh, what is going on around us, and they would kind of listen to the conversation. That would be a privilege for someone to listen and hear um, this conversation. So this is a really big deal that Jesus is invited to this party of someone who's high class in society. That's, that's a big deal. This, this, this Pharisee is someone that people knew. And so these guys are reclined. And, and so um, these bystanders often, some scholars will actually say that some, some of the bystanders could actually have access to the leftovers after the food, after the meal was done. It's very, very interesting. As you see kind of this thing playing out and building. And so Scripture shows us something that is really out of the norm in this sort of situation. Look at verse 37. 37 says this. And behold, a woman of the city who was a, what's the word? Sinner. When she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to weep, wet his feet with her hair, and wiped them with her hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with ointment. Now, we're not sure exactly um, and we would agree theologically here that all of us are sinners. Um, All of us are sinners. Um, And so when it says that she was a sinner, you're like, well, that's everybody, right? The way they would understand it here was if you were a sinner, you were classified in that way. You were not allowed at dinners like this. You were not, it it was not going to be a privilege for you. You were an outcast if you, and you would have been characterized by a specific sin that maybe your parents did, that you didn't have anything to do with, or that you had just been known for and so some would say that this woman was a prostitute uh, we 're not exactly sure um, some would would say that she was she had, had been married to someone who had uh, bad dealings and he was a corrupt businessman and we don 't really know exactly uh, what this woman 's sin is, but she 's classified in this way, and she was known in this community as stay away from that girl uh, it 's kind of like in John Four. Um, if you look in John 4, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture is John 4 when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well. The woman at the well was a Samaritan. Jesus was a Jew. This is like a Carolina, talking, Carolina fan talking to a Duke fan. This is what this looks like. And Jesus is the Carolina fan here in the passage. But um, And this, this is what you have that's happening. I'm just preaching the Word. Um, um, but, um, but you have this... Jesus talking to this um, Samaritan woman, which a man would never talk to a woman. and, And what you would see then is he's starting to approach her... At noon, at 12 o'clock in the afternoon, she was known also as a sinner. It's very interesting. And she is going to the well at noon. The well for women was like Starbucks, all right? And Starbucks was a place. I mean, they would go early, early in the morning and meet and, and talk about whatever girls talk about. I'm not sure. Um, I'll ask my wife later, but that's, they would talk. They would just get together and talk. And this is what this would, the soccer moms would do, Right? They would get together and talk at the well early. And this woman, because of her reputation, she comes and she shows up at 12 o'clock. Because she's isolated from the soccer moms because of what she's done. And Jesus asked her, he's like, where's your husband? He's like, I don't have a husband. She's like, yeah, that's right. Jesus calls her out because he he can read minds. Um, He calls her out and he says, you know what? You, you don't have a husband, but the guy that you're living with, you're using for rent money. You're shacking up with this guy. And then he gets right to the heart of the issue with this woman. And he shows her great, great compassion. It's very similar. Here's what we see in Luke 7. There's a woman who shows up unannounced that normally soccer moms and everyone else would avoid and stay away from at this uppity gathering of all the great people in town. And she begins to come to Jesus. She's weeping over her sin. And she begins to wash feet of Jesus. I love what the scriptures tell us because she walks into the party knowing that she is going to be treated horrific these people around her she's not like the pharisees in john 12 that love the glory that comes from man more than the glory from god she doesn't care what people think she's going in unannounced ready and knowing that jesus is going to show her compassion and love and she bows down and she worships him and i love what the scriptures say because it shows that right away she comes prepared she comes prepared. It says that um, when she learned this, she brought an, an, an alabaster flask of ointment. Now, let me explain what that is. Because um, when we think ointment, we think like Vicks vapor rub or Vaseline. And you're like, thanks, thanks, lady. You know, you put that on my feet. That's gross, right? But no, this is her perfume. This is her fragrance, and, and women would often wear um, a flask of perfume around their neck to only use in, in special occasions. So this is like her uh, this is like her Chanel, right? This is her Calvin Klein. This is her Gucci, right? This is what's going down. She's got it on her neck, and she would typically use this. And I only knew that because I Googled it. Um, she only would use this in certain occasions like an occasion of, if she's a prostitute, luring a man to sleep with her. This is the occasion that she would use this. And so now she is pouring this out on Jesus' feet. She was prepared and knowing that this is my sacrifice. This is all that I have. I'm going to give it to Jesus. And I'm going to bow at his feet in this way. And it says that when she learned that Jesus was reclining at the table, that is when she brought this flask. She came prepared. And I got to tell you this morning as I looked at that, I kind of shook and said, man, how often are we prepared to see and hear Jesus? I mean, on Sunday mornings when you know that you're going to come and hear from the Lord, you're going to hear from the Word of God. How prepared are we? And we do that. And I love this woman and how prepared she is. And she knows that she's going to meet with Jesus and she brings a sacrifice do we, do we bring sacrifices? Are we going and praying, God, will you, will you show me something this morning from your word? Will you challenge my heart? Will you allow me? Uh, will you forgive me of my sin? Will you open my eyes to new parts of my heart that I just don't see? Do we, do we do that? Are we prepared? I love how prepared this woman is, and I also love how humbly she comes. It says that she stood behind Jesus, and she stood at his feet. It's a great place to be, right? The feet of Jesus, worshiping him, offering all that you have to him, regardless of what others might think. She began to wash his feet with her own hair, her own tears, and her own fragrance. And I've got to tell you, um, as we look at this, and I think about my own upbringing and growing up in church we did foot washing I've been in foot washing ceremonies before and it's not the same as we see it in scripture I mean I was in one recently they didn't even take my shoe off and like, I'm like no 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 we're taking these dogs off man like these socks are coming you're getting that lint out that thing is this irritating like if you really want to show me love man we're going to get this we're this on but there they, they, they was like a flow bee on my shoe and I was like this isn't this isn't foot washing at all right What would happen here in Scripture is this. Feet were gross. All right, they're gross now. I'm really grossed out by feet, by the way. I think my wife has the cutest feet, but she's like the only person in the world that I think, and my son, But for right now. Um, But they're like the only people in the world that I think, oh, you know, I I can wash my son's feet, right? But feet were nasty. People didn't have um, shoes then. They had sandals, or they walked around barefoot. And so they are walking around in dirt, mud, and manure. And their feet were covered in that all the time. You know, nasty, bloody, stinky feet. And she's doing this. She says that she kisses the feet of Jesus. I want you to think about her humble state. This ain't like I'm taking off his, his Nikes, I'm going to wash him, you know, just to get the get little piece. No, it's, it's a big process that she's going through when she meets with Jesus. She comes humbly. She comes prepared. Let's look further in the text because Jesus is showing this woman great generosity. But I want you to see what's happening here. Verse 39. Then when the Pharisee, uh-oh, who had invited him saw this. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. Says this. And Jesus answering him said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he says, and he answered, say it, teacher. It's very interesting here what's happening. Because... It says that he, this is what this guy is thinking, all right? This is not what this guy said. This is what he thought. I mean, by now, people should have realized that Jesus can read your mind. It should be like Inception, where you're like, clear your mind. Let's let anyone in here. what's going on in my head, right? But this guy is just like, yeah, she's a sinner. If he knew that, like he's thinking that in his mind. And then Jesus calls him on it. He's like Simon, which is very interesting because you rarely see Jesus call a Pharisee by name. But here he's like, yeah, I know you and I know what you're thinking right now. All right? And then this is how he responds. He gives him a very easy parable um, here soon. But he says, hey, Say it, teacher. If you have something to say to me, say it, teacher. What that word was, was rabbi. And what you would see consistently, this is not a word that, followers would often use. Followers would sometimes call him rabbi, but they would also call him lord. Pharisees call him teacher consistently throughout scripture. Um, There's a scene where um, you got um, Jesus in Matthew 26 at his very last supper. And and, and Jesus is, again, he's reclined at a table with 12 of his disciples, and he's like, hey, listen, one of you are going to betray me. One of you are going to abandon everything that I've been talking about. You're going to You're gonna walk away and you're gonna betray me. And then all of the disciples they they, they pop they, they just start speaking. They say, Listen, and they're they're smart by now. They know that he can read their mind. That they're not denying it. They're like, is it I, Lord? And so you have throughout the, every single disciple is going, uh, is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? You got Peter. Is it I, Lord? You got John. Is it I, Lord? And then it finally uh, comes all the way down to uh, Judas. And this is what he says in Matthew 26, uh, 25. Judas, would you betray him? Answered, is it I? What does he say? Rabbi. He said to him, you have said so. All the disciples said, is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? But it comes down to Judas. Notice what he calls him. Is it I what? Rabbi. Is it I, teacher? And this man here that Jesus approaches in Luke 7, he says, tell me, Rabbi. Tell me, teacher. What is it? That you have to say to me, Jesus knew that this man's heart was not authentic, he knew that this man's heart was not real, he just knew him as a teacher, but not as Lord. Jesus, I love what's happening here. This picture that we see Jesus is reclining at a table and he acknowledges that there is a possible prostitute there and he acknowledges that these people are Pharisees and he's laying there and he is comfortable with both he's comfortable with both he knows there's Pharisees there he knows there's sinners there he knows that and he's having fellowship and eating with both guess what there's probably both here in this room there's probably a group of people that are Pharisees It's probably a group of people who are just broken and in sin. Jesus is comfortable with both. He's comfortable with both. If you're sitting there going, yeah, I know who he's talking about. Guess what you probably are, right? You're saying, well, and then if you're sitting there saying, yeah, tell those Pharisees. I mean, guess what, right? Guess what? Jesus is comfortable with both. So Jesus responds Um, To this man, Simon. We know him, but just based on this, this is what we know his name to be. says this in verse 41. This is his parable that he says to Simon. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay back, uh, could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will he love more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the large debt. He said to him, You have judged rightly. Now, this is... A very simple parable. It's not really hard at all. Not really difficult. Um, but Jesus is reading this man's mind, which shows you, by the way, that he is fully God and fully man. This is a, a big theological term. It's called hypostatic union, that God, that Jesus was in the flesh and he lived his life as a man. But he also uh, emptied himself of some divine rights. But right now he's using some of the things that, would, that only God can do. He can only remind us. This is what God can do. And so at this moment, he's beginning to live himself out as the man-god. So the man-god is sitting at a table with Pharisees and with sinners. And then he begins to tell him a really simple parable. He's like, which one? He's like, definitely uh, the guy who had the most debt. He's going to be more grateful. He's going to be more thankful for what you've done and what you've brought him out of. He's going to realize and he's going he's to love that person who got him out of debt more. He's just going to be thankful. It's obvious. And I can even see the sarcasm of Simon because he's like, I suppose the guy who's, you know, I suppose the guy who's been in in, in great debt. And Jesus says, you've judged rightly. He's getting uh, more and more to the heart. Look at verse 44. Look how this thing continues to unfold. He says, then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. This wonderful fragrance, this perfume. This is what Jesus is saying to this man. He's calling out. Things that you would normally do if you were throwing a party like this. You would just be generous to the guests who have arrived. You would show them uh, a warm welcome by kissing their cheek. Um, in Christian culture, we, shout, we do the side hug, and that's what we do. And um, But he's saying, you know... Kiss my cheek. This is what you typically do. You typically would have water out for people to wash their feet. You don't want people's stinky feet all over the table. And you want to show them that you love them and you care for them. And um, basically what Jesus is showing him is your party is lame. Your party is lame. Why can't you throw a party? Like, what, Why can't you just throw a normal party like where everyone comes and they feel welcome and love. This is a sterile environment that you've created. Why can't you just throw a good party? Jesus gives them the answer in the very next text because you wonder, why in the world wouldn't they do these things? This is what everyone knew to do. Everyone knew that you, you hug and you kiss and you love the people that are coming and you wash their feet and you, 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 know, you take care of them. She's like, why are you throwing a party like this? Verse 47. Says this, therefore I tell you, her sins are many um, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And, and her and he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. This is the most beautiful words I've ever seen in Scripture. Your sins are forgiven. And he says this to this woman. And he's saying, Listen, the reason why you can't throw a good party, the reason why you are even rude to every guest who comes is because you don't have love. And if you look at these Pharisees, they have the rules, they follow the customs, they do all the right things. But he's like, listen, you don't have love. You don't have love. It's just like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. If I give away all that I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain what? I gain nothing. I gain nothing. I can do all of these things and I could I could do all of these miracles and I could give all I can give all this food to the poor and I could do international missions trips and I could come and join and I could sign up after church and, and say what team I'm gonna be on. But if I don't have love I gain nothing and no one gains anything from it. He's like, you're missing the foundational part of the gospel because you don't realize what you've been forgiven from. And that's the gospel. That's the gospel. And i got to tell you, anything, what we see in Jesus, he does not minimize this woman's sin. He doesn't say, well, she's a pretty good person, and I've just made her a little bit better now by forgiving her. No, he's like, her sins are Many. He's like, I've known her for a long, long time. You don't even know what I've seen, right? This woman has many sins. And I gotta tell you, when I see churches that minimize sin, they're minimizing the gospel. They don't preach sin, they don't talk about it because it's offensive, it will bother people and you can't grow your church that way. I know that. I know all those things. But here's the thing that Jesus is saying. The one who is forgiven much will love much. So if we see our sin and we see the the nature of what our sin does to us and how it destroys us and how it continues to separate us and push us away from our relationship with God and we acknowledge that we have sin in our heart, then we see the great saving work of Christ. That He says, yeah, Ben Tugwell, his sins are many, but I've forgiven all of them you know what that brings up in me? More and more worship of him. I can't invest my life in sin. I have to repent and I will love him all the more. And as a result, everything that he's given me beyond hell, which I deserve, all the things that he gives me, I just appreciate so much more. My wife, my family, my children, my health because I realize I don't deserve any of those, because I realize that I'm a sinner. And we struggle with that. We struggle saying that. And we we have cute terms that we bring into our, that our culture has taught us, and we brought them into the church. Like, well, God hates the sin, not the sinner, right? We've heard that, right? He just doesn't hate the sin. He just hates, like, like the sin is like some kind of cosmic thing that's just floating around that God hates, and then whatever it lands on, yeah, I hate that. No. That's not the language of Scripture. By the way, that's not a Bible verse. I just want to clarify that. It's not a Bible verse. All right? Here's what the Bible says about God's hatred toward us because we are sinners. It's going to be uncomfortable here in a minute. All right? Can you guys hang on to that? Hang on with me. Psalm 5, verse 5. The boastful shall not be. Stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Anybody have that on their windshield? Anybody boastful in here? God hates you. Let's pray, right? What are we going to do with that? That's tough. Psalm 11.5, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Proverbs six sixteen. There are six things that the Lord hates. Oh, can't wait to hear those. Seven of them are abomination to him. Haughty eyes, lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and the one who's, who, uh, who sows discord among brothers. Anybody struggle with any of those things that I just lifted off? What do you do with that? Romans 3, 23, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If I just ended there, that is a really bad sermon, by the way. That's really, really stinks. That's really bad news, right? I mean, if we look at these lists and say, I've got them. That's me. He's got me. Look at what he says to this woman in verse 48. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. And those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sin? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. They say, Who does he think he is? Who can forgive this woman for the multitude of sins that he's done? Who can forgive this woman that Jesus even says her Sins are many. Well, that's again, him saying, I'm God, I have the authority to forgive sins. But let's just answer the Pharisee's question of who can forgive this woman of these sins. John 6, 35 through 36. The father loves the son and is given, what does it say? All things. Into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on who? Who? Seriously? Who? Him. Thank you. The wrath of God, the anger that God has toward all the scriptures that I just showed you about God's hatred toward sinners, God's hatred toward sinners, it is now put on his innocent and perfect son. Every single sin that you and I and this woman and the Pharisees at the table were all put on his perfect and innocent son. When God looked, the uh, hatred that he saw in sin was cast on his son at the cross of Christ. When Jesus went to the cross, he absorbed all of our sin. That's what he did. That's so what he did. Isaiah fifty three six And we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of all of us. Of us all. Every single one of us. First Peter 2.24 He bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by your wounds. We've been healed. Second Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, he has made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the passion of Christ. Christ going to the cross and absorbing the sins of this woman, the sins of the Pharisees, and the sins of you and me. That's the beauty of the cross. So I don't want to minimize sin. Because what I would do is memorize the finished work of Jesus. And so when you acknowledge that you have sin in your heart and you acknowledge the weight of your sin and the guilt that you live in about your sin, just know that Christ forgives Christ took on that wrath that God has hatred toward he took it on on himself so that you could see and worship him rightly so that you could come humbly weeping at Jesus' feet that you would serve him and worship him and love him and the people that acknowledge and see their sin will love Christ more because they realize what they've been forgiven of And so this morning I want you to just be be challenged by how much do you acknowledge sin in your life and how much do you acknowledge the forgiveness that Christ offers. Repentance is a huge part of you coming to know Jesus. So if you don't know him, you acknowledge your sin and you repent of it and you acknowledge that he's the only one who can forgive. The Pharisees couldn't believe that he had that authority. Do you believe that he has that authority? I want you to respond with great joy this morning if you're a believer, acknowledging the sins that you've committed toward God and acknowledge the forgiveness that he offers you. And that's the great gospel that we have. That's the God that we serve. And so for for our church this morning, what I'd like to see is that we would be a church that consistently preaches the gospel, Christ and him crucified. And through that, We would acknowledge our sin, and through that, we would walk in joy, knowing that when he died on the cross, that he rose from the grave, which conquered the the penalty of Satan's sin and death, and that we can be restored to new life only in him if we believe in him. So I pray that we would be people of joy. We wouldn't be people of sterile passivity like the Pharisees, who when new folks come in, we don't even throw a good party. We just kind of sit there and judge that we would be come to people with open arms that we would love and hug and show hospitality and generosity, because we know what we've been forgiven for, and we know the king that we worship and we know the king that we serve, and people can know it by seeing it in our face. That's what matters. People would see the gospel. Let's pray.